and acknowledgement. Uh, and anything else you'd like to say about yourself or your connection to CCPA. You can also post questions anytime throughout the event in the chat and we'll have some time for uh, Q&A after our presentations. I'm going to share a few opening comments and then we'll hear from our trio of economists. Iglika Ivanova is going to share some highlights from the federal budget. Alex Hemingway will provide an overview of the fiscal context surrounding the recent provincial budget. And Mark Lee uh, will give an overview of some of the highlights of what we saw in that budget. Uh, ben Parfit, our resource policy analyst is also here today and will jump in during the Q&A and feel free to put questions to him as well. Uh, and just to let you know, we are audio recording uh, the event, but not video. So you won't make any guest appearances on the internet <laughs> after, to, after this live event. Um, and I want to also note that we're joined today by several other members of our uh, fabulous staff team, including Amir Amirs, our Associate Director, uh, and Rav Cambo, our Supporter Engagement Specialist, who many of you also will know. Um, and uh, let's see, are we okay here for um, format, Amira? Things are proceeding all right. Okay, thumbs up. Well, here we go then. Um, so I, uh, I was looking back at my notes today and I realized that it was just a little over a year ago that we held our first online supporter briefing. And I've been thinking back like many of us, I think in the last month or so uh, to what we were doing and thinking at CCPA at that time and what we learned in that initial phase of the pandemic, uh, that our governments are capable of sweeping effective and rapid action when they decide to do so, that all the supposed rules about the economy and government spending that we've had drilled into us for so many years are truly just as arbitrary and contrary to people's well-being as so many of us have long argued, that the pandemic is only one of several interrelated crises that we face, along with socioeconomic inequality, uh, profound and long-term racism, addiction and the poison drug supply, climate change, uh, and others. And that there is widespread public desire to build an equitable and sustainable economy coming out of the pandemic, not just to recover to the old normal. And uh, some of you may have seen, we did some polling um, back in June of last year that uh, showed just really how overwhelmingly strong that public appetite is. A year ago at CCPA, uh, we were scrambling like everyone else to make sense of what was happening, but it really felt like some fundamental you know, changes were possible if not already in progress. And today, a year later, it feels a little more complex. It's a bit more fractious in terms of the public mood around the pandemic and the public health approaches, um, not to mention the reality setting in that in spite of the vaccination program, COVID-19 um, is going to be with us for a long time to come. Uh, in some sense, I think that, you know, in spite of, of notable exceptions, our governments are a little bit stalled out on, um, in the realm of initiating really bold policy measures. Um, a year ago at the first CCPA webinar, I noted that I was struck by the fact uh, that as we went into the pandemic, it was really progressives who by far had the most to say in public policy debates for quite some time um, in that initial period. And I think that was because we've long been focused on collective solutions and mobilizing governments to respond to major societal problems. Whereas the right has dedicated itself to fighting against those ideals and undermining the very notion of collective well being and the value of public services. It was also true because, for once, uh, the corporate 
uh, sector or block uh, recognized, albeit out of sheer self-interest, the need for massive public expenditures on health and welfare programs. Uh, and yet here we are over a year into the pandemic without legislated paid sick time for all workers, without a plan to get profit out of long-term care, without evidence that policymakers are bringing lessons from fighting the pandemic into the fight against climate change in a really significant way. Uh, and we're starting to see some of those warning signs about uh, austerity on the horizon, um, which Alex and uh, the others will say more about. So our work is far from done, but I do strongly believe that we remain in a time of real possibility to make historic transformative gains in relation to those intersecting crises that we face. We're seeing, for example, the powers of doctors and the power of doctors and healthcare leaders joining together with the labor movement in the call for paid sick time, a fight that does not end with Doug Ford's paltry three-day offering, uh, I declare. <laughs> um, we face a number of uh, serious complex challenges whose solutions are less straightforward perhaps than the example of paid sick time. But in most cases, the biggest barrier uh, to moving ahead is lack of political will, not a lack of solutions. Last week's federal budget is a real case in point. We saw the announcement of a $30 billion uh, investment over five years to finally create a national childcare program. Very exciting um, victory, particularly for um, the incredible childcare advocate community who have been fighting so long for this. Uh, but it's not just the money announcement that was interesting about that. The federal government is using its spending powers to bring provinces to the table uh, to move not only towards $10 a day childcare, uh, but also towards growth in the nonprofit in nonprofit spaces to improve the pay and training opportunities for childcare workers, and as an accountability measure to develop a common baseline for uh, publicly available data. And this is a total aside, but I have to take this opportunity to also say that uh, this year's federal budget actually cited the CCPA's research and even included a chart from our national office's annual report on childcare fees across Canada, uh, a report that has really helped draw attention to the um, impossible situation facing parents of young children in this country. Uh, so that's my, we're very proud of our national office colleagues for that recognition. But back to the budget itself, uh, we can really contrast what the federal government did on childcare to what we saw in relation to long-term care. The budget announced that desperately needed national standards for long-term care that it had promised it would bring in in its throne speech last fall. Uh, they announced that those will be developed by the country's standards associations instead of announcing what those standards would actually be. And certainly the National Standards Association is highly unlikely to establish, for example, the right to care based on need without financial barrier. That is not the nature of the focus we're likely to see. The 2021 federal budget dedicated a paltry $3 billion over five years, not even starting right now, starting next year, to, uh, quote, support Canadian provinces and territories in ensuring standards for long-term care are applied and permanent changes are made. I don't even really know what that means, but they went so far as to say the federal government will work collaboratively with the provinces and territories while respecting their jurisdiction over health care, including long term care. Now, in, I in no way want to detract from the incredible victory on child care that happened uh, through the federal budget. But as Dr. Vivian uh, Stamatopoulos, a co-founder of Doctors for Justice and Long Term Care, remarked, 
in her reaction, she said, let's be clear, I am 100% for national childcare, but I am also 100% in favor of national long-term care. And I would add premiers like Doug Ford and Jason Kenney and Scott Moe, uh, some premiers rather, <laughs> like the, that trio, uh, would have us believe that the federal government has no business doing anything other than sending a check to provincial governments. But as the pandemic has made so clear, we badly need a renewed era of federal provincial cooperation. And it's not just a matter of constitutional powers that's holding us back. It's a matter primarily of political will. Uh, the constitutional the federal government is perfectly able to use its spending powers to address key challenges we face here in BC and across the country if it decides to, just as it has done with childcare. I could go on about uh, seniors care and what we didn't see on long-term care, but I'm going to leave it there and hand it over uh, to Iglika to say more about the federal budget. Thank you, Shannon. And thank you everyone for joining us uh, this evening or afternoon. It's great to see so many familiar faces and names and so many new ones. Uh, I hope you can see my screen. Um, let me see how I can make this go in presentation mode. Okay. Um, so today I will talk a little bit more about the federal budget. Shannon already made some very important points about what we saw, but sort of like my top level conclusion, I guess, is that there are some hopeful signs and childcare is definitely a beacon of hope in this budget. But overall, it is a missed opportunity for true transformation towards the kind of inclusive economy that Canada needs um, at the end of this pandemic. Um, now, I'm sure you've all seen the headlines on the federal budget. We're seeing some big numbers here, $100 billion in new spending over three years, large deficits. And compared to the constrained budget we got used to seeing for the last 30 years, this one really feels very different. And it is different because the crisis we are living through is unprecedented as well. And uh, the crisis we have lived through over the last year has really made painfully visible the human and economic costs of austerity budgets that we've had for, for decades. And it has shown us that the status quo isn't working for too many people. So even though this is a very big budget and historic compared to you know, the last 30 years in Canada, when we ask the question of does it rise to the challenge of what is needed in this moment, the answer is not quite. Now let's talk about the good news, which is childcare. Um, it, there is a historic federal commitment to childcare. I am very excited about it. And I know some people you know, are, are cynical and I would say that the liberal governments in the past have promised childcare a number of times and we've never seen it really happen. But this one truly feels different. And this quote on the top of the slide is from the budget and it signals what the government is intending with, with this new commitment. It's not just the money. This is what they say. This will be a transformative project on a scale with the work of previous generations of Canadians who built a public school system and public healthcare. So in other words, we're seeing not just money, but the ambition to build the first new national public program since healthcare. This I think is really big news and needs to be celebrated and acknowledged accordingly. You know, there is more money on the table than many thought possible, $30 billion over five years. It is front loaded, which is very unusual for government commitments that are over long periods of time. Usually the money comes in the last few years, 
of the promise here that it comes in the beginning. Um, the goal is very ambitious, 50% reduction in fees by the end of next year. This is fast. This is way faster than anything even the BCNDP government promised in 2018 in its 10-year plan to provide childcare in BC. And the goal is fundamentally to get to an average of $10 a day by 2025, which is, you know, four or five years from now. And this table, you know, this timetable is faster than the BC government's 10-year plan that started in 2018 and we're in year three or four of. So, so this, this is big news, guys. You know, it, um, as Shannon mentioned, it is focused on supporting nonprofit childcare specifically um, it is paying attention to better valuing and compensating the early childhood educated workforce and in um, making the federal government become an equal partner um, to provinces in the funding of childcare overall. So overall, 50% of the funding come provincially and 50% federally with the federal government setting conditions. And right now, these conditions are mostly around affordability, but they don't necessarily have to be. So. So this is the historic commitment on childcare, and we, we can talk more about it in the Q&A if you're interested. Now, unfortunately, other investments didn't quite hit the transformational bar. You know, there is a lot in this budget. It is over 700 pages long. There's money in a whole bunch of areas for many, many things, but it doesn't quite hit the transformational bar. You can read the list of, of some of the highlights of what's being funded. Um, I won't go into great detail, but um, I want to point out a couple that are really important. One is that the government is expanding the Canada Workers Benefit, which is essentially a benefit to the working poor. And it is estimated that with the new expanded benefit, a million more workers will be receiving that. So that is not um, a small change. I mean, it is not a large amount of money, but it, it does contribute to um, you know, the, the living conditions of, you know, and the, the incomes of, of work, the working poor. And we saw during this pandemic that a lot of the working poor are essential workers, so that's important. And the, the government has committed to a $15 minimum wage, which of course is mostly symbolic because very few people are covered by actual federal labor law. But I think the, these two changes importantly communicate that we do need to be focusing on low-wage workers. And there is this nod to needing to improve the conditions of low-wage workers and the working poor, which unfortunately, you know, you'll see isn't present in the BC budget, for example. Um, there's some money for gender-based violence. There is some money to support charities and nonprofits. But in general, um, what this, this budget provides is a lot of temporary programs over the next two to three years. And only one third of the, of the new funding of those one, uh, $100 um, billion in new spending, only one third of those will be for ongoing programs and two thirds are for temporary COVID related initiatives. Now, as you will see in this chart, the big spending numbers look big on paper, but if you look into the details, the plan is to get back to the status quo in a couple of years. So this chart just shows program expenses over time, you know, from the early 80s until the time frame of this budget, 2025, 26. And you see that outside of this COVID bump, which is very significant and historic, we're going back 
to small government. There isn't an actual transformation to our, our new role envisioned, bigger role envisioned for government. And that, that is a problem. Um, the other thing to note of this budget is that it does kick the can down the road on some major reforms that have been promised by this government. For example, reform on EI or employment in, uh, insurance. Um, there's money for two years worth of consultations, even though we know that the program doesn't work, is in need of major reforms and the reforms have been proposed by advocates, they exist, you know, we're still looking at two years worth of consultations. Similarly, we know income support for people with disabilities is woefully inadequate, but a new disability benefit will only be introduced potentially after three years worth of consultations. Um, Shannon already covered the national standards on long-term care. Again, the cans kick down the road and the standards will be negotiated over the next year with provinces. So, you know, not quite the transformation we expected. Notably missing from the budget, um, from, you know, even though lots of things were there, are wealth taxes or any revenue measures that would curb the high and rising income and wealth inequality. So there's no excess profit tax, no increased taxation on investment income or capital gains, um, despite arguments that now is the time to be taxing a wealth and income concentration. There are some small measures I'm sure you've all heard about the new higher tax on luxury yachts and planes, but that is that is small potatoes compared to what a wealth tax would represent. Um, there's no action on housing affordability. There's a small tax, like vacancy tax, um, on uh, units that are left empty, but only if owned by foreign owners. And the tax is smaller than the one that exists in BC, so really isn't going to make a difference to the housing affordability in this country. And the climate investments, although the numbers look big on the surface, again, they do not match the urgency or scale of the challenges we face. Um, and most of the climate investments that are in the budget um, are for clean tech for industry and, and various incentives for the private sector to get us to net zero. There is no vision of an industrial strategy or a role of the federal government to lead us in decarbonizing the recovery and in shaping a low carbon economy. And with that, I will pass it on to um, Alex, who will talk about some of the highlights of the provincial budget. Okay, just give me a second here. I'm going to get the screen share going. Uh, thanks, Aglika, and thanks, everyone for being here. Okay, I think that should do it. And um, yeah, so let's shift into the, the BC budget. Um, Mark's actually gonna go through some of the highlights in, in particular program areas and what got funding and what didn't. But before we get into that, I'm gonna talk a bit about the overall fiscal context of the budget. So we're gonna get into some serious numbers and, and, and wonkery, wonkery here for the next five or six minutes. Uh, and, uh, you know, when it comes to budget time, uh, a favorite theme of the media in any budget, and, and this year was no exception, was what's happening with the deficit or the surplus? Uh, this is always an area of focus. Well, it gets more attention than it, it merits uh, in many ways, but uh, let's just talk a little bit about the situation we're in. We are, of course, 
running a large deficit in BC right now uh, as a result of uh, the pandemic uh, uh, and the economic downturn that we're in. Uh, so the, the deficit for this uh, past fiscal year that just came to an end uh, turned out to be $8.1 billion. Now that was actually uh, $5 billion less than had been projected uh, just uh, a few months ago. Uh, so that tells us something. That tells us we actually uh, could have been spending more this past year where uh, it was needed in, in areas like uh, getting a, a sick pay program off the ground and supporting renters, uh, um, you know, uh, the, the dealing with you know, various elements of, of, of the crisis we're in, uh, the opioid emergency, uh, uh, the homelessness issues. You know, there was action taken in, in all of these areas, but we actually had the capacity uh, uh, to do more, and, and that's a capacity we continue to have. Of course, running a deficit is exactly the right thing to do at a time like this. We, we needed to be investing in health, in supporting people financially through the pandemic, uh, in economic stimulus uh, as we uh, 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 turn to an economic recovery, hopefully. Um, and you know, it's also the case, even without this moment of crisis, we've had for many years now a, a real backlog of important social investments uh, that are needed in this province in, in some of the areas we've been talking about, uh, childcare, housing, climate action, uh, poverty, opioid crisis, uh, so many areas. And in each of those areas, you know, there are social needs that need to be met. Uh, but it's also the case that these types of public investments have a, a significant economic payoff in, in the medium and long term. So constraining that spending, uh, spending less than we need to, uh, can actually be economically and fiscally irresponsible in, in the long term. So we should be looking to uh, uh, increase that role of government uh, uh, substantially in a sustained way, not just uh, uh, a momentary spike of, of spending during the pandemic, as uh, you know, Aglika highlighted in that helpful chart about the federal budget. Uh, we are seeing uh, in the budgetary plan in BC uh, deficits for the next few years, uh, but declining. Uh, that is, you don't necessarily need to parse this chart, but I'm just putting it up there for a moment. Uh, um, we're seeing uh, declining deficits over the next few years. Running significant deficits, e even for a number of years in a crisis, is economically a, a, a non-issue. As I've suggested, it's the right thing to do. It's not something to be concerned about. You know, if you're looking at the longer term, you can't run large deficits indefinitely. But in the short and medium term, it absolutely makes sense. Uh, and in that longer term, we want to be raising additional revenue to fund additional public investments. So it, in terms of our fiscal situation in BC, even with these large deficits and adding to uh, the overall stock of public debt in BC, the interest costs that we're facing are remaining near historic lows. Because even as we're adding additional uh, uh, debt, interest rates are so low that the costs associated with the total stock of debt are relatively stable. And you know, compared to other provinces, we're in a very good situation. We have one of the lowest debt to GDP ratios in the country, more or less tied with Saskatchewan. Uh, now, one thing I want to highlight for you about the fiscal context of, the, of this BC budget and BC budgets in general is that they are padded with all sorts of different types of uh, contingencies, uh, fiscal padding of, of different kinds, uh, essentially unallocated funds uh, uh, that you know, make the budgetary situation look uh, more squeezed 
than it really is. And so in this budget, that takes uh, a number of different forms, uh, some general contingency funds, uh, a, a very large contingency funds dedicated to pandemic recovery. And that actually even includes a, a sub fund that's unallocated within that, another contingency fund. There's funds for uh, future investment over the next few years that are unallocated, sort of unnamed future priorities, money set aside for that. There's forecast allowances uh, associated with you know, uncertainty about economic growth. And actually that there's a double version of that. So in addition to that forecast allowance, the budgetary modeling that BC uses, and this was true under the previous government, it's true now, uh, purposefully underestimates the expectations about economic growth. It chooses, it models a growth rate that's lower than their own economic forecast council is telling them. And so, you know, th this is all framed as a type of uh, budgetary prudence, but actually it obscures the resources that are available to us as a province, uh, particularly at a time when no public investment uh, is needed at, at a larger scale. And this is just those contingencies added up together uh, of different kinds. So, you know, next year together, these contingencies are worth over uh, $5 billion. And even a few years out, uh, that contingency padding adds up to more than $3 billion. Now, put, put all this, and, and here's just a chart on, on the underestimates of economic uh, growth projections, uh, already covered that. Now, what I wanna get to next is uh, one of the promises that we saw both in the throne speech and uh, in the budget document itself is a commitment to return to balanced budgets over the next several years. And when that's combined with what I've got up here on the screen, which is recent comments by uh, the premier saying that they plan on not bringing in any new taxes, uh, if you're going to be uh, reducing the deficit, but not uh, increasing taxes on the rich, for example, uh, that means you're gonna be constraining spending. And so that's very concerning uh, because of that big backlog of badly needed investments uh, that, I, that I mentioned earlier and, and really the imperative of uh, uh, expanding the role of uh, government and the public sector in addressing some of the major challenges of our time. Uh, and so that is really a common theme here between the, the federal and provincial government. This is the uh, budget the, between the federal and provincial budgets. This is the chart that Avlika already showed you with respect to the federal budget in terms of, you know, in both budgets, uh, despite this temporary spike uh, in spending associated with the pandemic, uh, we're really seeing things snap back to what was the status quo uh, you know, a year and a half ago to that uh, shrunken role of government. And so and I've got the BC chart here, similar picture. I've actually, in this case, I've extracted those contingency funds to show, show you what the core spending projections uh, look like. And so you know, when you look at the long term here in British Columbia, and this chart illustrates it, you know, compared to 20, years ago or so, we are uh, dedicating a substantially smaller share of our economic pie to public investment. And unfortunately, that is a trend that has largely continued uh, as governments uh, have changed over the past few years. You do see that, you know, even pre-pandemic, you see a modest uptick uh, in um, public spending under the NDP government. I, hopefully you can maybe see the, the, the two colors change there or, or read where the, the date cutoff is there around 2017. Uh, and you know, after the pandemic, you see the projections are you know 
going back to largely where we were before, a little bit higher, uh, but but not by much. And so, you know, if you look at the gap between where we were 20 years ago and uh, where we're projecting we're going to go over the next couple of years, that's very substantial. If we were spending as much, uh, uh, you know, in the next couple of years, uh, well, particularly at, at the, you know, once these uh, uh, one-time expenditures run out, uh, we would, as we were 20 years ago, that would give us about seven to eight billion dollars a year of additional uh, public investment to work with to meet some of those big challenges of our time. So, you know, uh, we are, uh, I think a common theme here in, in the comments uh, so far is that uh, while some big important things are happening, uh, we're not seeing that transformational uh, change about uh, the role of government, uh, which we know is so crucial, uh, you know, as, as we lurch into the next crisis of climate change and, and so many other uh, social areas that require our attention. Uh, so I'm going to stop there and, and pass along to Mark. Thanks. Okay, thank you, Alex. Um, give me one sec here to... All right, folks. Um, so I'm just going to kind of rip through the main areas of uh, public spending and, and what happened. Um, you know, the short answer is uh, um, not a whole lot. So <laughs> it'll be a quick presentation. Um, you know, like uh, like uh, Shannon and uh, Gleek and Alex have already argued that, uh, you know, essentially what we have in BC is a failure to rise to the real challenges of the day, whether that is um, uh, the opioid crisis or poverty or uh, housing. Uh, or climate change, or indigenous rights, uh, all of the areas that uh, we've been really pushing hard on, um, you know, have not really manifested much in the in the in the 2021 budget. I mean, you can sort of blame that on COVID, I suppose, um, that you know this is really the COVID budget, and all those other things are going to have to wait. Um, but I think that's incredibly frustrating to to be told that we have to wait um, another year or, or more uh, in order to get. Uh, things that are, are fundamental, particularly as they were highlighted by COVID uh, itself. Um, uh, a lot of the, the budget allocation, uh, as Alex mentioned, for COVID is just lumped as a, a big amount of contingency. Uh, it's not clear whether the full amount uh, of that will, will be spent, and often those amounts go towards padding uh, the, the numbers so that we, at the end of the day, we come up with a, a better than anticipated uh, outcome, at least from the perspective of uh, financial markets. Uh, of course, the, the big gap on COVID that we did not see in the budget was the uh, a uh, lack of paid sick days, and we hope to see some movement on that very soon. Um, the We did see an increase half a billion dollars towards mental health and the uh, opioid uh, crisis. So, uh, so hopefully that some optimistic uh, moves there and uh, free transit for kids uh, under 12. Uh, turns out it doesn't actually cost a whole lot of money to do that. And so uh, this is great. And, and part of a, a campaign that the poverty reduction campaign, a coalition, sorry, was, uh, uh, was leading. Uh, so uh, this is very exciting. Uh, a new uh, NBC investment fund or strategic investment fund. It's not a clear, exactly clear what that is going to be funding, uh, hopefully not oil and gas. Um, from the perspective of uh, Indigenous people, First Nations, um, just you know, quoting from the First Nations Leadership Council here, that there's a, you know, a lack of significant financial commitments to uh, First Nation related issues, uh, no real details on the Im implementation uh, of UNDRIP uh, in, uh, in the federal bureaucracy and a lot of uh, issues around resource policy that were, were left off the table as well. Um, climate change and energy was also disappointing in, in the blog post 
uh, that uh, Alex and Aglika did. We just left it out because there was really nothing in the budget. So uh, nothing to see here, folks. Uh, continuing uh, fossil fuel subsidies for fracking and LNG. The budget itself is projecting a 31% increase in gas production uh, over the next uh, three years, uh, you know, which is alarming given the Paris Agreement and all the commitments um, that we make. And that's before the LNG Canada terminal opens up uh, in 2025. Um, we have uh, some new money for electric vehicle incentives, which is uh, you know, one of those areas of climate action that I'm pretty lukewarm uh, about uh, and that I don't think they're very good use of public money. Uh, we did see the uh, a move to to eliminate the PST on uh, electric bikes. Uh, so that measure is worth about seven million dollars compared to 123 million dollars for electric vehicle incentives. Uh, so uh, it's unfortunate because I think that would be a real game changer in urban contexts. Uh, and no new money for transit infrastructure. Uh, some of the key areas are around uh, poverty reduction. Uh, BC has a Together BC plan, uh, our first poverty reduction plan, which aims to reduce overall uh, poverty uh, in BC. Uh, and essentially, we see no movement on this uh, whatsoever in, uh, in this budget, uh, apart from the uh, we are calling it an increase in social assistance uh, rates of $175, but it feels like a cut because it was a $300 uh, COVID uh, increase uh, temporarily that, uh, that came in a year ago. Uh, we also had a, a great uh, report uh, led by one of our research associates, David Green, on basic income, which pushed for so much greater income security measures in, in BC. And really, a lot of that was just um, thrown by the wayside, or perhaps we have to wait uh, another year. Um, uh, housing, I think the main area to, to flag in terms of housing is that the province, along with the federal government and the city of Vancouver, have been buying up various uh, hotels uh, and other spaces uh, around the city uh, to provide supportive housing uh, and, and shelter for, for homeless uh, people. Uh, those It'll take some time for those to come online, but I think that's a significant development. Uh, there is also a $2 billion um, low interest um, financing support um, basically for anyone in the, the private sector uh, working towards uh, a project in the housing hub. So there's some targets around affordability uh, associated with that. I wasn't too happy that, that some of this money is going to for-profit developers, um, but our folks in the nonprofit housing sector were, were happy and thought that it would help some get some projects um, of theirs uh, off the ground. Uh, so that's a major, uh, that's a bonus. Um, but overall, really no major provincial increase uh, in the in, in direct investment in affordable housing. Uh, this is not rocket science. We know how to make this. Um, we know that we, if we do it through the public sector or through nonprofits, it costs you know, dramatically less and we can provide uh, affordable housing that pays for itself over time. So I think that's you know, really disappointing that uh, another year goes by and we're not gonna see uh, much of an increase. And a lot of the numbers that are being thrown around by the, by the province uh, are for projects that are still in the works. The actual number of completed projects over three and a half years is, is incredibly small. Uh, the, elect, the renters rebate we were promised you know, two elections in a row, uh, no sign of that. Uh, no reform of the very unfair homeowners grant, which costs um, you know, just south of a billion dollars uh, per year. And, and no measures to cool the housing market that is driving massive uh, inequality uh, in, in BC. Uh, great if uh, you're a homeowner, uh, but if you're on the outside looking in, uh, that wall just got higher. And last, um, 
in terms of the caring economy, I think you know the overall budget uh, for healthcare, uh, you know, continued to sort of increase uh, in pace. Um, I don't pick that apart a whole lot. I think the budget for education was more or less, um, you know, growing uh, with in terms of, of population. So we're, we're look budgets that are are growing somewhat, but not really uh, in a way that provides real increases in services. Really, just keeping up with the overall uh, going for costs. Uh, obviously, COVID highlighted some of the gaps, particularly around childcare uh, and seniors care. Uh, budget 21 fails to plug those gaps. Um, we see a modest increase uh, in childcare uh, in the budget, but um, you know, the childcare advocates were extremely uh, disappointed that uh, this budget didn't continue the increases we've seen uh, over, over recent years and the, uh, the timeline in terms of, of uh, expanding a $10 a day or truly affordable uh, childcare. Uh, there is a wage top up for early childhood educators, uh, which is important given the low wages uh, in that sector. Um, but we suspect that uh, what's happening is that to the word of a, a federal uh, engagement on childcare has, has gotten through and that the province is now essentially gonna sit on its hands and wait for federal money uh, to come through. So uh, that's disappointing given the, the, the gap that we have uh, there. Uh, and we still have a pattern of uh, in childcare where public capital spending is going to support um, you know, investments by for-profit companies. Uh, and you know, we've called this out and uh, we think it's very uh, problematic. And similarly on the seniors care side, uh, we don't see any meaningful shift away from uh, for-profit uh, residential care. And that's it for me. Back to who's in charge, Shannon? Uh, no, I'm in charge actually. <laughs> Oh, and stop share. Thanks, Mark. Um, I'm gonna, hi everyone, I'm Amira, I'm the Associate Director here at the BC office and I'm gonna run the um, Q&A here. So I'm gonna start actually, uh, Mark, you may wanna take this and I don't know, Ben, who's here as well, who hasn't been um, presenting, but is our resource policy analyst may also have some thoughts. Uh, Bob Hackett, hi, Bob. Um, Congrats on the piece that you had in the National Observer today. That was great. Um, Bob has a question about whether or not the federal budget addresses uh, fossil fuel subsidies at all. Um, and he notes that the BC non-action here was pretty disappointing, but um, is there anything in the federal context that you would speak to on that, Mark? Um, no. <laughs> <laughs> okay, fair. In fact, I would say in, in, in them not only are not reducing subsidies, but they have recommitted to their promise of, you know, spending $18 billion to, to uh, support the fossil fuel sector during the pandemic and uh, with its current struggle that they had promised last year. So that yeah. was announced shortly before the budget. Um, it, it is real hypocrisy that we are saying we're spending a lot on climate action and um, you know, the federal government did slightly improve its climate targets, you know, compared to what previous conservative government had promised, but, but it is very marginal considering the urgency of the situation. Thanks, Aglika, and I didn't mean to not include you in that. I know that usually Mark and Ben speak to climate, but happy to have you chime in as well. Um, so here's a question which, um, anyone can jump in and speak to is coming up as having come from Rav Cambo, but I think it's from one of our supporters. Uh, I not Rav who we work with. I think that's due to a technical glitch. Um, but a thought on Biden's approach on wealth tax, 
um, realizing that he may not be able to bring it to realization, but you know, they're, they're talking a, a, a bigger talk now down south than we are. Um, and whether or not, um, or what you folks on our team think about the sort of maybe lack of action on the either federal or provincial front. Sure, maybe I'll, I can say a couple things about that. So the, I, I mean, I, I haven't um, poured over the Biden plan in, in detail yet, but so there's no wealth tax being proposed uh, in terms of an annual wealth tax of, of the type that's being increasingly debated over the past couple of years. But it, a, a real positive is, and I'm sure this is what you're referring to, is the move to uh, in the US to increase the capital gains tax, uh, particularly focused on those with very large capital gains over a million dollars. And so this is uh, something we've been talking about here. You know, when we're talking about wealth inequality and addressing, you know, the rise of billionaire wealth, we've been calling for a suite of measures. One is, is an annual wealth tax, a, an entirely new type of policy to really focus in on the richest of the rich and uh, uh, chip away at those massive fortunes uh, that um, they've accumulated really frankly, to the detriment of the rest of society. But another one of the key policy planks that we talk about is very similar to uh, an element of what Biden is doing there, which is, you know, it, under our tax system uh, in Canada, uh, we tax the income you get from owning existing wealth, i.e. capital gains, uh, very differently and preferentially compared to how we tax income from work, from wages, from salaries. And capital gains are taxed at half the rate of regular working income. Uh, and of course, uh, those capital gains happen to be concentrated among uh, uh, the most affluent in, in our society. So we've been calling for uh, closing that gap and saying, let's tax these types of income at the same rate, eliminate that preferential treatment. Uh, Michael Smart, uh, an economist at U of T, recently did an estimate of how much revenue this would raise federally, $15 billion um, was his estimate. And so, uh, you know, Biden's doing a version of that only on capital gains over a million. Um, but, you know, I, that, that's a move in the right direction. And it is really a shame that we're not seeing um, any moves in that direction uh, in Canada at this point. You know, it's striking. I, and this is the last thing I'll say is, you know, wealth tax, um, annual wealth tax is incredibly popular in Canada. It's 80% of the population supports it, two thirds of conservative voters. Uh, and yet we're not seeing action. And that's, that's really striking. And it says something I think about uh, the dysfunction of our democracy. Thanks, Alex. Um, any of the rest of you have anything to add to that? Okay. Um, uh, I'm just going to scroll up here. Sherry, I know you had a question about the initiative around um, getting, helping get people with disabilities returning to work. Um, Shannon, would you be able to speak to that one? I'm not as aware of that program, so thanks for bringing it to my attention, Sherry. Yeah, thanks for that question, Sherry. And I, I can't speak to the specifics of that uh, initiative uh, precisely, but I wanted to respond just um, to highlight, you know, what my reaction to it was, you know, that yes, it's important to have uh, employment supports absolutely for people with disabilities and, uh, you know, can't comment on the specifics of that program, but I do think it's quite a contrast um, to think about uh, the basic income panel report, uh, which Mark 
mentioned in his comments, uh, which recommended shortly before uh, the budget was uh, released, just it was just the uh, income panel, basic income panel report came out in uh, December. Um, and it called for an increase in uh, disability uh, uh, income support rates uh, to bring them up to the poverty line. Uh, essentially a, a, a basic income for folks uh, who live with uh, disabilities. And um, I think it's unfortunate to see uh, that the re that the action that was in the budget, uh, you know, was employment support related and, and something, you know, really not uh, what the community has been calling for and, and, uh, and what the, the government's own uh, appointed panel called for. Thanks, Shannon. Um, so, Gerardo, the, you asked an easy question. What are the main policy suggestions to address the housing price inflation? Uh, and what are main blocks on expanding supply? Uh, Mark or Alex, do you have anything to jump in on there? Um, well, I mean, I, I think what we've been advocating uh, over the last few years is, is that we really need a major build out of non-market housing uh, that, you know, the model that we've been relying on that's you know, led by private developers uh, is leading to market rate housing, uh, whether that's in the ownership market or the rental market. Uh, and that housing is, is out of reach for the vast majority of households. Uh, so we would like to see, um, you know, in Metro Vancouver alone, uh, 10,000 new units every year of non-market housing uh, to uh, keep up with uh, population growth and uh, deal with some of the backlog that we've seen uh, over a number of years. So we've been looking at the kind of macro side of that, how many units you need. We've looked at the micro side in terms of how much it actually costs uh, to, to build that. Uh, and acquisition of public land, we think is a really key ingredient that uh, uh, we should get into, uh, particularly through more progressive uh, property taxation. Uh, which itself will also help keep a lid uh, on prices. But essentially, we, we think it's fair to ask uh, folks who have benefited substantially, uh, and I consider myself one of them, uh, from the run-up in housing prices uh, to contribute some of those gains back to providing affordable housing uh, for the next generation. Uh, so there's certainly a lot uh, we can do, but uh, you know, public land, uh, and uh, tax policy uh, is a big one. We're doing some really important work now around uh, upzoning, so uh, allowing increasing the allowable amounts of density, particularly in detached or what's the so-called single-family areas, uh, but doing that with conditions that ensure that uh, new development uh, leads to new housing one way or the other, uh, either by directly providing it or by contributing into a fund that, uh, that supports uh, the building of affordable housing. So it's a very big topic uh, for us, and uh, we can certainly put some links uh, in the chat to some of the work that we're doing and uh, expect more over the next few years as part of some research we're doing. Thanks, Mark. And just to add one, yeah, just one little thing, which is one interesting development uh, related to that. You know, Mark was alluding to the upzoning issue, and, you know, in cities like Vancouver, it's about uh, 75, 80% of the city you can't build anything uh, denser than um, single family or duplex homes. So apartments are essentially 
banned in most of the city. One way of addressing that, uh, and, and that's happened at Vancouver City Council recently, is some moves to specifically allow nonprofit housing to be built up more in those areas. So that they've carved out actually a pretty small amount of those areas since that covers most of the city, but they're going to by right allow nonprofit uh, housing providers to build, I think, apartments of uh, up to six stories and a few limited spaces. And I know there's moves to expand that further. So that's, you know, there's the municipal element to this for sure. Great. Thanks, Alex. Um, I'm just trying to get back to uh, a question here, which um, there's been so many great questions. Thank you all. Here we are. Uh, was there any justification or mention given in the budget for the now $16 billion budgeted Site C dam um, with the uh, comment of for what will now be overpriced power? Uh, I know there were some notes in the budget around uh, capital expenditures. Um, I don't know if any of you want to speak to that. Give it to Dan. Uh, <laughs> no, is Ben trying? I can't see. Yeah, sorry about that. I mean, uh, other than the fact, excuse me, other than the fact that the the budget notes that there that the the cost has risen astronomically to uh, over sixteen billion, um, not a lot of detail at all uh, on on. Uh, what has given rise to that cost, uh, additional cost, uh, and I don't think anything to indicate uh, that the government has any any confidence or reason to believe that the number will stay uh, at that $16 billion cost and not go considerably higher. And, and just one quick note, I guess, which is that um, in terms of the capital spending in the budget, um, so in the, in the NDP's platform in the fall, there was a promise to increase capital spending by $3 billion a year. Um, it was already quite high. So that, you know, that was substantial to go past that. They didn't um, quite get to that level of increase in the budget. It would have been $9 billion over three years if they had met that, didn't get there. And it's what they did get though was over half of the increase in capital spending uh, was due to Site C. So that's, you know, it's, it's eating up a, a lot of resources for sure. Great, thanks. Um, there is a comment about um, a note. Uh, Serena noted that you, she'd like to hear more about the dysfunction of democracy that you mentioned, Alex, I think in reference to the wealth tax piece. Uh, sure, yeah, I, I mean, so yeah, there's that disconnect between where public opinion at, is at on wealth tax. Also, you know, a really fast-growing body of research um, from leading economists around the world showing that this policy is possible, and yet it's not really seriously on our um, political agenda. So, you know, I mean, in part, I, I think that's attributable to the fact that our political class is very aligned with Bay Street and, and the financial elite in this country who don't want a policy like this. Um, it actually kind of relates to my dissertation research about class representation in, uh, in, our, in parliaments around the world, but that's a whole other topic. But it's a, you know, it's a concern, there's a disconnect there. And, and the only other thing I'd say is, um, I just finished writing a piece uh, that should be out you know, sometime in the next few days, pointing out a similar dynamic in relation to paid 
the paid sick days issue, right? You know, again, very popular, very common sense policies that we need paid sick days in a pandemic. Uh, doctors, uh, economists, experts of all stripes are talking about this. Um, and yet it's taken so long to see any movement and we don't even know if we're gonna end up in the right place yet. Um, but the business lobby was very active from early in the pandemic, trying to foreclose on the possibility of having, you know, real uh, employer paid sick days built into our employment standards law. Uh, and I, I write about some of the, the uh, lobbying efforts they did uh, last year. And so I think that partly explains that uh, democracy dysfunction. And I don't want to just be dour about this. I think, you know, it's clear that we can counter this type of influence, you know, organized working people can counter this type of influence. That's how lots of people have won paid sick days within their workplaces in unions. And we see, you know, uh, labor unions leading the fight for legislated sick days for all. So it's, it's uh, like any social justice challenge is building that organized power from below to counter um, uh, these uh, concentrated interests. And just to, to, to finish off on this topic of, of you know, not, not just being pessimistic about everything, I would say that the, the win in the federal budget about childcare really shows that advocacy works, that this has been very, very concerted effort by a lot of people across the country, a lot of campaigning and advocacy, and it made it in the federal budget in a very big way. So it is possible to, to win and to get those publicly supported policies into into the budgets. And I think it just highlights the, the important role advocacy plays and the important role we can all play in, in winning these. Yeah, and if I can just quickly add to that, I think it's important to remember that um, most people when asked want many or most of the same things that uh, I'll maybe exaggerate slightly by saying that we all do <laughs> who are here today. Uh, I'm sure there are some differences of opinion, seeing a healthy debate starting on housing in the chat, which um, there's nothing like housing to get a discussion going. But um, but I think it's really important to, to remember that. I'm just gonna really quickly um, share, I mentioned at the start, some of the um, polling um, results that reinforced our sense. You know, this was from, uh, early June last year, but uh, is consistent with subsequent um, uh, opinion research that's been done. But, you know, we found that large majorities of supporters across party lines, you know, agreed very strongly with um, the idea that COVID-19, you know, we shouldn't just have a recovery plan that takes us back to a normal. And we also asked people whether they would support a whole range of, um, which you can see the list over here on the, the left from making seniors care a universal public program in Canada, um, you know, paid sick days for all workers, um, re required from all employers, a whole variety of, of measures where a majority of um, people were strongly supportive. So I, I think it's important to keep that in mind, um, even as we struggle with some of our frustrations and disappointments um, as we push and push along the way. Thanks, Shannon. Um, any last words from any of my colleagues here before we wrap up? I guess um, one one thing that I wanted to mention is I know a lot of our our analysis focuses on how this isn't 
quite reaching the transformational bar and it isn't but but i don't believe the the time like shannon said in the beginning i don't believe the time is 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 lost for winning some of those things and the budgets both federally and provincially are still very much covid support budgets and trying to get us through the pandemic and i do think that that with a big concerted push and advocacy over the year we could get next year's budget to bring some of the transformation that we need, especially provincially, but, but federally as well. Great. Thanks, Iglika. Shannon, I'm going to pass it off to you to close us off. Well, thank you again, everyone, for um, joining us. And before we wrap up, I do want to say a giant thank you to all of you who are CCPA donors in particular, but supporters uh, who share our material online or otherwise engaging in the um, struggles for progressive uh, changes that we've, the kinds of changes we've been talking about this afternoon. Um, the pandemic has been a stressful time for nonprofits and charities, and we feel very privileged to have the support of folks like you. Uh, and before we close out, I do want to invite us all to uh, we have we've had you know about 160 people on today, and obviously we can't. Um, hear directly from everyone one at a time, uh, but I would like to ask us to join together um, in a moment. If you don't have your video on, turn it on. Uh, and Amira is going to use her uh, all-powerful um, Zoom host uh, settings to unmute everyone at once. So make sure the toilet's not flushing. And, uh, and we'll have a moment to hear uh, all of our voices in a shared uh, goodbye. So if you are ready, three, two, one. <laughs> Bye. Bye. everybody. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Very good. Enjoyed that. Thank you. Thank you. Final word. Well, great to see you so much, everyone. You, Penny. Bye. Chrissy. That's a great idea, Mira. That was very cool. Yeah, so great seeing everyone. Yeah. Yeah, it was lovely to see everyone. Oh hi! I I, I just saw. <laughs> so many Rob Campbells. Yeah. I know. I know. It was a glitch. It was a glitch. Wouldn't it be awesome to have lots of Rob Campbells? Though I think that would be pretty <laughs> awesome. Absolutely. The more the better. Oh my goodness, Penny and Ron, so great to see you. Yeah. yeah. You guys doing well? Yes, but you all look hale and hearty, I have to say. Because <laughs> <laughs> I stay cooped up in my little place. I don't do anything. <laughs> right. <laughs> yes, that was wonderful. Terrific. Oh, thank you. They're so great, the presentation. Yeah. Uh, thanks, everyone, for joining. Sure. Bye, all. Penny and I ran into each other on the trail recently, so it's nice to see you again. <laughs> right. <laughs> yeah, staying fit there, aren't you? <laughs> That's good. <laughs> okay, we'll let you go.
Okay. Bye. 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 I'm gonna end the meeting. Lovely to see Bye. everybody. Oh yeah, human. Thank you. Nice. <laughs>